You are listening to the podcast of Calvary Church in Irwin, Pennsylvania. For more information, you can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com. Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to have you with us, those watching online and here in person. We're just grateful uh, to have you join us. And uh, my name is Nick. I'm the lead pastor. I'm the person they mentioned earlier that turned 24 today. So it is uh, great to be here. And uh, today we're starting a new series that uh, has been something, uh, I'll just be honest with you, that I've uh, hoped and looked forward to being able to share for at least three years, maybe more. And um, uh, we're starting a series these next three weeks uh, called The God Perspective. And uh, I'll just be honest with you, give you a little confession. Uh, you are probably aware of some of this. The last few years in America and in the American church have been chaotic, uncertain, crazy, and everything in between. Uh, we sometimes, there were stretches, we didn't know what was happening next week and what new curveball is gonna come. Like, you know, we had, uh, what, killer hornets, and we had, you know, I don't know if you had the 2020 bingo card, but um, we filled it out. Uh, wild time. And here's my confession. At least for this church, and I think the broader American church uh, is the same, but I can't speak for that. I can speak for this church. I don't feel like we did a very good job preparing you and preparing those that call this church home to process and respond properly to what has happened and all that's happened in our world. And what I wanna do of these next three weeks is to take you on a journey, just me and you, I'll be speaking all three weeks, on how can we process this. And I wanna share with you some tools that I've learned and researched and things that I've discovered so that you are ready and prepared to process. We're walking into a year over this next year that has the potential to be pretty crazy. I don't know if you know this, but next year is a presidential cycle again, which could present some interesting times. And, and uh, I wanna make sure that uh, for you and what you're processing, locally, globally, nationally, that you can process it from a very specific perspective. Not my perspective, because my perspective doesn't matter. God's perspective. And that's the idea of this, this whole series. And, and so for these next three weeks, we're gonna go on, on that journey. And these next few weeks, uh, to be honest, will not be a series of messages where I'm telling you who you should vote for, uh, what issues you should champion or not, or even what I personally think should be happening in our world or in our country. That's not what we're here for. Instead, I wanna help you acquire the best biblical tools possible in your toolbox to help you personally process what's happening in our world and not to come to a conclusion that matches a certain political party that, that matches a media outlet or some famous talking head, but rather matches something the Bible actually describes. My hope is that we as a church family could adopt this God perspective, not, not you fill in the blank whoever's perspective, my perspective or anyone on TV or any other a leader. That's because perspective makes all the difference in how we process things, how we interpret things, and consequently how we act. It's so very important. I'll give you a quick example. Uh, on Labor Day 1935, 88 years ago, uh, what would become known as the Labor Day hurricane was approaching the Florida coast. At this point, it was just a growing storm in the Atlantic, but it was quickly approaching. Meteorologists were confident in the path it would take, which is they believed it would go further north uh, uh, along the coast there in Florida. 
But at the same time, there's a massive FDR public works project underway in the Florida Keys, which if you don't know, is south. Uh, that project had over 400 workers tirelessly working to complete this project. The experts were saying that the storm was gonna miss the keys, so the project continued as planned. The job supervisor, though, was a retired, uh, retired uh, major from the military. His name was Ed Sheeran, not that Ed Sheeran. <laughs> he had some serious, I don't think that Ed Sheeran was even born yet. Uh, he wasn't, it was 1935, so he definitely wasn't. But uh, that Ed Sheeran, the supervisor, he had some serious concerns. He had lived through a hurricane himself and on the job site started to see some signs that he interpreted as indicating the storm was headed right for them. Uh, Sheeran shared his deep concerns with his direct supervisor who then communicated those concerns all the way up uh, the, the line of, of command, the chain of command, which uh, his, the headquarters for this project was based in Jacksonville, Florida, which is just north. Sheeran recommended the best thing to do was to evacuate the entire job site and all 400 plus workers. Headquarters agreed and soon sent a train to get all the workers out of the Keys before the storm hit. The problem was no one told the workers the train was coming. From their perspective, everything was normal and business as usual, so the train comes, no one gets on the train, the train leaves, empty, and the workers continue doing what they're doing. After Sheeran realized the train had come and gone with no one on it, he fired another warning to his superiors up on the castle on a hill. Sorry, I couldn't miss the opportunity. If you know Ed Sheeran, you'll understand. Um, he, he fires one more message off to Jacksonville, and he said, we need to evacuate these workers now. But his warnings, uh, as they worked their way up the hierarchy of leadership, by the time they reached the top, the leadership once bitten, uh, decided that rather than sending another train, the better option was to just wait, wait things out and see what transpired with the weather. Honestly, it was a pretty easy decision to make sitting in an office in Jacksonville, Florida, as opposed to being on the job site in Florida Keys. Their thought was that maybe Sheeran was just overreacting and if the conditions did get worse, they could always send a train from Miami to pick them up. The US Weather Bureau even agreed that Sheeran was making a big deal out of nothing. Well, as it turns out, Sheeran's perspective was actually the right perspective. The hurricane would, in fact, hit the Florida Keys directly with incredible force, 160-mile-an-hour winds. By the time headquarters finally approved the train, it was too late. The train began on its way from Miami to the Florida Keys, but the wind was so strong, it actually blew the train off the tracks. 259 workers would be killed in that storm, Labor Day hurricane, 1935. This tragedy happened because of this conflict of perspectives that was happening, taking place. You see, we will always make the best decisions which produce the best outcomes when we have the best perspective. In this story, Sheeran's perspective was shaped by his proximity to the issue, while his supervisors, their perspective was shaped by the priorities that they held on to. And my hope over these next few weeks uh, is to provide a way for you to position yourself in such a way that you can possess a biblically informed, godly perspective on what is happening around you in your family, in our community, in our nation, in the greater world. Uh, the, the real struggle with this is that in today's society, we have more perspectives being shared publicly than we've ever had before. 
There are more voices and, and interpretations of what's happening than we've ever had before from 24-7 news outlets to social media. We've never had more opportunities to come to a conclusion and to adopt a wide variety of perspectives on any given issue. And while we have more options than we've ever had before, most people, unfortunately, only get one perspective. It's the perspective they want to hear. Whether you are one of those that watch Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or TikTok or wherever, The Daily Show, wherever you get your news, most people, they like get one perspective. We, we have more options, but more often than not, find ourselves in an echo chamber that just reinforces our own perspective. And this is what's created what's become known as the culture wars. And the culture wars are, are happening all over, in families, uh, in relationships, uh, online, in workplaces. And, and, and as we look at what it means to adopt a biblical perspective, this, these next few weeks, I want to wade into the waters of this culture war and talk about something that isn't really being talked about. Not, not which side is right, not which political party should be in power or or, or what policies or laws should actually be in place? Because can I be honest with you? The problem in our world, especially in our country, isn't a political problem. It's not a legislative problem. It's not a policy problem. The problem in our world is the same problem we've always had, which is a spiritual problem. And to solve a spiritual problem, you can't legislate it away. You can't get it to where it needs to be just because a certain group or political party is in power. You have to address a spiritual problem with spiritual solutions. So instead of, of, of addressing those things, what I want to do, I want to talk to you about the perspective that, that, that we're viewing things from. Like what perspective are you viewing things from? Where are you standing? Where are you postured? It's because we can get so caught up in the issues in which side we're standing on that we completely miss the perspective or the lens through which we're viewing those issues. And, and here's a simple thought that I want to share with you today, this simple idea. Our perspective informs our position, which drives our practice. Our perspective will inform our position on things, which drives our practice, how we flesh that out. And in the broader Christian community, we have more recently gotten this all backwards. We allow our politics to inform our reading of Scripture. Or we, we, we read the Bible with a lens to only reinforce the conclusions that we've already adopted. But, but here's what it's supposed to be. The Bible should inform our practice because it positions us to see what's happening from God's perspective. Not from our perspective. Not from that famous person on TV's perspective. From God's perspective. And let me show you what I'm talking about uh, with a conversation that Jesus had with a woman uh, in, in John's gospel. John chapter 4, verse 4. Here's, here's what took place. It says, now Jesus had, had to go through Samaria. Now, I want to stop there for a second. If you know the, the geography of this area, Jesus had to go through Samaria. It's quicker, but most Jews actually went around Samaria when they were traveling because people didn't, Jews didn't like traveling through Samaria because Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Um, you know how we feel about Ravens fans? Sorry, Pastor Dave. But you know how we feel about, it's like that times 100, okay? They hated each other. It'd be more like Penguins fans and Flyers fans, okay? Might be a better example. Like, Jews and Samaritans didn't interact. They didn't like each other. They didn't interact. So Jesus, he's actually passing right through Samaria, which as a Jewish man was not common. So it says, now Jesus had to go through Samaria. Verse five. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, 
So understand, this is a pretty holy place. This is a place that for Jews uh, and Samaritans both was a very special place. Uh, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Verse seven, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now that's a really simple question to ask. Like, hey, you're drawing water. As you draw some water, can you give me a little bit? I'm thirsty. Verse eight, it says, his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. So like Peter, James, John, all these disciples, like they're going into town. There's probably a Taco Bell there. They're gonna get the meal because that's where Taco Bells are, like in a population base. Jesus is outside the town at the, water, the, the well, you know, where, where people would come to get their water. So he's sitting there while they're going to get his, you know, his three tacos and a burrito or whatever. And, and he's waiting. And, and, and he meets this woman, asks her for water. Okay. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift, or, oh, sorry, back up. Verse nine, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And we get this parenthesis in, in John's gospel. He tells us, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So the fact that Jesus was even talking to her was kind of a big deal. And not only that, he's asking her to do something for him. Verse 10, Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This whole conversation is so fascinating because it's like Jesus is almost ignoring her question. Like he's, he's asking another question or making a statement that is like from a different, different perspective, a completely different place. Verse 11, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This story is so fascinating because we see Jesus Interacting, one of the few times we see really clearly these two just polar opposite perspectives clashing. Uh, a Samaritan and a Jew, Jesus and this woman. And, and, and what we see in this conversation is our response. See, see, this clash of perspectives that takes place is fascinating, one, because of how Jesus responds. Note, notice Jesus, uh, as, he's, as he's interacting, the care that Jesus took in his conversation with this woman. He wasn't angry, he wasn't argumentative, he wasn't browbeating her because she has a different perspective. Uh, he, he, he was taking this care and concern in his interactions, conversations, something uh, just to take note of in our conversations. And, and he clear, we clearly, clearly see these two people, these differing perspectives interacting. The woman held a popular worldview of perspective. Like this was common. If you asked 100 Jews or Samaritans at least 95 of them, if not more, would have come to the exact same perspective or conclusion that, that this woman was. So she held a pretty popular worldview perspective. Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Samaritans definitely don't help Jews. And what Jesus was doing was addressing this popular worldview by contrasting it with a heavenly worldview, what we might call a biblical worldview. And, and let's be honest, adopting a biblical worldview it's one of the most difficult things you can do. This, this is not for the faint of heart. I don't say that to scare you, but choosing a popular worldview in society is honestly pretty easy. 
because all the media outlets, your friends on social media, the podcast, everything you're watching and, and, and absorbing is reinforcing it. It's backing it up. And because of that, it makes sense. But a biblical worldview, a biblical worldview is different. See, a biblical worldview is the result of an intentional pre-decision you make that can, at times, and oftentimes does, contradict the popular worldview. People are like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? I can't believe you do that. That's a biblical worldview. In verse nine of John four in this story, we see this. It says, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? What's he say- she saying? She's saying, this isn't how things work. This isn't how society works. You shouldn't be talking to me right now. And Jesus' behavior, his practices, his interactions weren't defined by what society said should or shouldn't be done. It was defined by what heaven said should or shouldn't be done. In other words, what are you doing, sir? You shouldn't be talking to me. And Jesus' perspective on that was taking place. What, what he, was, he was processing conflicted with how that whole interaction was supposed to go. Beyond the media or social media, well, there are a lot of different influences that shape our perspective. Uh, a lot of voices in our world. One of the biggest, most influential pieces that influence our perspective is how we were raised. Uh, the, the environment we were raised in. Our, our, our home life, whatever it may be. These, these years are far more influential than we even realize oftentimes. We see this explained pretty clearly in scripture. In, in Proverbs chapter 22, verse six, in the New King James Version, it says, train up a child in the way he should go and he will not When he is old, he will not depart from it. That same verse in the New Living Translation says, direct your children on the right path, and when they are older, they will not leave it. Or or in the message interpretation, it says, point your kids in the right direction. When they are old, they won't be lost. We see in this verse, all those translations, interpretations, there's something to be said. The Bible says that when you invest in children at a young age, it sets them on a path. And this is why we have Calvary kids. This is why we have our Calvary kids groups on Wednesday night. This is why we have Calvary students on Sunday night. Why? Because we believe in in giving students, children, God's word to help them process what they're experiencing through that lens. At a young age, it equips them with the tools to process what's happening around them before their perspectives are hardwired by the world that's feeding those perspectives. For many of us, though, uh, what we sometimes aren't aware of it, we've been hardwired. Our, our perspectives have been hardwired. You know, maybe, maybe you ended up adopting a, a worldview, a perspective that uh, you were simply handed, not one you arrived to on your own. Uh, I've seen this happen many times, even for kids who grew up in church, where you know, they're, they're just handed a, a, a perspective, and they're just told this is what you're supposed to do, or this is what you're supposed to believe. And as they get older, and, and that perspective gets challenged, maybe in college or in life, they don't know what to do with it because they didn't, they didn't come to that conclusion themselves. It was just handed to them. There's something about wrestling. There's something about adopting a perspective that you have worked through, that you have developed, you've wrestled with, and that you have allowed to be informed by God's word. And, and for, for, for a lot of us, we're not kids here. Our, our worldview, our perspective as it is right now is there. Like it's set. And the question is, if my perspective or if my worldview uh, is, is maybe not where it should be, can it change? Like, or am I destined with that perspective? Am I destined hardwired for the rest of my life? Can it shift? And I want to show you a story where uh, that did happen. 
for a, a, a man by the name of Saul who later became known as Paul. And, and this first story I wanna share with you is in Acts chapter seven. And, and in this story, Saul was practicing this perspective that he was raised with and, and had been taught since he was a young boy. He, he, you have to understand this young man, was, he was raised in a home of a, of a religious leader, a Jewish leader. He was trained under one of the best, Gamaliel. He was the most Jewish person you could imagine. And he held strongly to those beliefs and convictions. So much so that he was uh, organizing efforts to deal with a known follower of this new movement that would later become known as Christians. And, and this man was striving to punish and to eventually kill one of the first deacons of the church, a guy named Stephen. Here's what it says in verse 55 of Stephen in this whole interaction. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now those words infuriated Saul and those that were with him. Verse 57, it says, at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him. Now, can I be transparent with you? When I read this verse, all I picture are my boys at home, putting their ears, hands over their ears and running at me. Um, but this is what was happening. They were so infuriated, they lost their minds. They lost all sense of what was right and wrong. And they rushed Stephen. They dragged him out of the city, verse 58, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, why is that important? Saul was the one organizing, condoning this. That, that's why that verse is there. It's important to note. Uh, verse 59, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep, meaning he passed. This is the first recorded martyr of the church. Saul was responsible for that death. And Saul's perspective was so ingrained in him and yet so far from what God wants that he was literally organizing efforts to kill men of God like Stephen. If there was a guy who was without hope of ever changing his perspective, it was Saul. But, but then, then I wanna read another verse to you. This is something that was written by the same guy, Saul, who would later, uh, later encounter Jesus, be transformed, and honestly become one of the greatest forces for the gospel in the New Testament. Here's what he wrote in Romans chapter one, verse 16. He wrote, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So, so what was different in Paul from one moment to another? Was it just his conversion experience that like flipped a switch for him? Like how did he come to such a different confusing uh, like journey? Well, a worldview or perspective is more than just a position that we hold to. But it's a lens through which we interpret the entire world. Like we can just flip our position on things, right? This isn't about a position though. It's a lens. This means that having a biblical worldview is not something you can just adopt. It's something you have to develop. It's not just something you adopt. It's not like, well, I'm going to church now, so I guess I just have this worldview and you just you know, grab all this stuff and say, well, I guess that's what I hold to. No, no, it's something you have to develop and inform. Viewing the world through a biblical lens happens with the help 
of time and information, education, greater understanding. Just look at what Saul, who became later known as Paul, did after he had this life-changing encounter with Jesus on his way to imprison known followers of Jesus, known Christians, in the city of Damascus. It's recorded just a couple chapters later in Acts 9, verse 17. It says, Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to pause there. This whole story is so fascinating because Ananias didn't want to go pray for Saul, for Paul. He actually had this whole conversation with God. He's like, God, I can't do that. This guy is scary. He's killed Christians. He's imprisoned Christians. In fact, he's come to my city, Damascus, for one reason, to arrest Christians. Everyone knows it. And now you're asking me not to hide from him or avoid him, but to literally go to him. That's like a death wish. Why would I do that? And God's like, do it. And, and here's something that, uh, kind of a, a side note I think is important. And when we're talking about having a biblical perspective, that when we are willing to be obedient to what the Holy Spirit prompts us, what God speaks to us, it will oftentimes cause us to cross lines and boundaries. Not morally, not legally, but society lines and boundaries. That others might say, well, you're not supposed to do that. Just like, Jesus, you're not supposed to talk to Samaritans. Hey, that person's in that political party. You're not supposed to cross that aisle. Or that person is this or that. You're not supposed to interact with them. And, and this is what's so fascinating. Ananias is obedient. He crosses that line. He goes, and in verse 18, it says, immediately something like scale, scales fell off Saul's eyes and he could see again. So the moment he, he, Saul encountered Jesus, uh, he, he was blinded. It says, he got up and was baptized. Verse 19, and after take, taking some food, he regained his strength. Listen to this. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. It's like Saul didn't just go, do his thing. He spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Do you know why the church and Christians in our country have responded to events in our world with such different extremes over these last few years? It's because we've stopped informing and developing a worldview that's based on the word of God. We've allowed our perspective, positions, choices to be informed by the outcome we want. Well, I want this outcome. I want this to be more favorable. Our, our, our decisions, our responses, our perspectives and, and our, 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 our actions and words shouldn't be informed by an outcome. It should be informed by the word of God. I mean, that is a drastically different place. You can get uh, an argument from all kinds of political talking heads that would say otherwise, but it's wor God's word. It will always be the foundation and filter for everything we do. And if, and if it's anything else than that, then we're off base, we're off track. Je Jesus said in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, he makes this statement, he, he sums up the law and the prophets. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. You've probably heard that verse before. It says, see, see we can be really good at loving God with our heart, we, we can be good even at loving him with our soul or even our strength. But oftentimes, we really struggle with loving God with all of our mind. And, and I'm not talking about like just thinking about God all the time. Like, you know, you're working on a spreadsheet at work or something and you're like, oh God, God, you love me as I 
calculate these numbers. Or, you know, your kids aren't cleaning up the room and you're throwing laundry down the hallway at them and you're like, man, God loves me right now. I'm not saying that you're just thinking about God. I'm rather saying we aren't real good at asking the question, what does God think about this? Not thinking about God, but what does God think about this? We, we know, we can Google and watch online or TV or whatever what a lot of people think about a lot of things. But stepping back and saying, okay, that's all good. But what does God think about this? That's loving God with all of your mind. Not just adopting what's handed to you. You see, gaining a biblical perspective or worldview is very difficult, but it's possible. And, it, and it, it's not gonna happen through osmosis. It doesn't happen by simply saying yes or praying a prayer. It happens by filling your mind and your life with God's word. That's how it happens. In, in Psalm chapter 119, verse 11, we're told this, the, the psalmist writes, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How do I not sin against you, God? By hiding your word in my heart. Uh, A few verses later in that same chapter, 119, verse 105, it says, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. I love that verse because of the word picture. We're walking through uncharted territory as a country. You know, for the last, you know, couple hundred years, plus, The church and Christians have been in a place of influence. The church has been a place, an institution that's been respected by the majority of our country. And we found ourselves in a place now where the opposite is true, more often than not. Being a Christian isn't something that people are like, I aspire to that. Or a church isn't necessarily a good thing all the time because of the stereotypes and all of that. We find ourselves in uncharted territory and the question would be, well, what do we do? Do we fight against that? Like, we want to get back to that place? Or my, my answer to that is, well, that's not up to us to decide. It's up to God to decide. What do we do? His word's a lamp unto our feet. We do what his word says. We don't worry about the outcomes. We don't worry about what's swirling around. We follow his word. His word is a lamp unto our feet. How do we know that? Because we've hidden it in our heart. And if we don't do that, then we, we allow our responses, reactions to what happened, whatever it might be, what happens in our world, to be just based on our own emotion, our own uh, upbringing, uh, all the things that inform that, rather than God's word. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Psalm chapter one, though. This, this, these few verses are so powerful. The whole book of Psalms is just a remarkable book, but it opens with these verses. Here's what it says. It says, blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. In other words, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Like the people who are in your life will influence you uh, in a great way. And he goes on, verse two. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. We love that last verse. Whatever they do prospers. That's what we want, right? We're Americans. We want to prosper everything. Well, that's not what, what it means though. I'll get to that in a second. Today, as we recognize the struggle to adopt a biblical perspective on, on all that's happening in our world, my question isn't do you have the right perspective right now. 
It's not, are you holding to that biblical perspective right now? Because it's not about what you have or don't have. Rather, it's about what are you cultivating in your life? Are you putting the right ingredients into your life to nurture and cultivate a biblical worldview or a biblical perspective? What does that look like practically? Well, we see these steps explained in that verse I just read in Psalm chapter one. In verse two, it says, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord? In other words, those that find joy, pleasure, and meaning in God's word. Not just like a religious duty, but, but you find meaning and joy in the words of God. And it goes on, he says, and who meditates on his law day and night. Not just reading it, but processing it. I've been guilty of this, maybe you have too. You just read the Bible just because you read the Bible and you got it done and you did your thing. You're, 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 you're like, it's, it's almost like you just like check something off that box, that list, and, and you move on. That's not what it means to meditate on his law, on God's word. It means that you process it. You, you question it. You wrestle with it. You say, man, I don't like that or I love that or why is that important to me or why is that really bothering me? What does this mean? for me how do I apply this and he goes on verse 3 that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither whatever they do prospers what the psalmist is saying when is that when we feed or inform our perspective and worldview with God's word we will establish something in our lives that anchors us and ultimately produces things that prosper and, and when it says prosper, it doesn't mean that what we might interpret it in today's society, like, like we're gonna be rich and super successful in the eyes of those around us. Remember, this is a biblical perspective and biblical priorities are vastly different than ours. It means that we prosper in what God made us to prosper in. Not necessarily wealth, fame, or influence, but a pursuit of God's purpose for our lives, a stewardship of the resources and influence that God has given us, and a heart to generously bless the world around us. That's prospering in God's eyes. And that when we are planted, when we are allowing our mind and our heart to be informed and to be filled with the word of God, we're processing it, we're not just reading it, we find ourselves with roots that are planted in a place that is being nourished. Even when everything else happens, when the storms come in our world, in our lives, when things don't go the way we want, when things are favorable or unfavorable, we're like a tree planted by living water. We don't move. We, we, we don't fall apart. You know, uh, one of the things that has always bothered me growing up in the church, I am 42 years old today. I've been in the church from the day I was born. My dad was a pastor. I have never, uh, 2020 was the very first year I wasn't actually in a church on Easter Sunday uh, because we were online. Like, I was as much of a church person as you're ever gonna get, okay? Like, that's all I've ever known. One of the things that has always bothered me over my 42 years of life in church is how exasperated Christians can become when there's, when there's epidemics and there's wars and there's stuff happening that just flips everything upside down. It's like, the end of the world is near. It's all falling apart. Like, we need to rally. And I'm like, hey, have you not read the Bible? One, the Bible said all this is gonna happen. So take heart. He overcame the world, right? Jesus said that. Number two, 
Number two, our health, wellness, and purpose isn't defined by all the stuff happening in our world. It's defined by our creator. And he's still on the throne. He's still in charge. He's still sovereign. Like that hasn't changed. And, and, and we need to stop allowing our reaction to be so informed by how we feel or whether it's favorable for us or Christians or the church. We need to start allowing the word of God to drive us. And, and if we can't do that, here's what's gonna happen. We will become more and more of a cultural Christianity. And a cultural Christianity is a Christianity that's hitched to culture. It's hitched to this or that. And anytime Christianity gets hitched to anything other than Jesus, things have always gone south. We have 2,000 years plus of history to show for that. You can study church history anytime Christianity, faith in Jesus, anytime it's been hitched to anything other than Jesus, it's always fallen apart and it's been, at times, disastrous. We can't affect the church at large, right? We can't affect the broader American church or the global church. But what we can do is to say for us, as Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. For this house, the Bible and God's word will inform and guide us. Nothing else. Not what's politically uh, expedient, not, not what looks right or sounds good, not, not you know, how's the PR on this or that. Not that, it's God's word that should and always will inform and drive us. And as the worship team comes today, I wanna, I wanna ask you to take two Two steps today in response to what we're talking about. Two kind of next steps. The first one is this. As I mentioned at the beginning, we're gonna be walking through this over these next two weeks, so through the rest of this month. And I wanna encourage you, if you can, do your best, clear your schedule for Sunday morning the next few weeks. Be here. Do your best to be here. I know, like church trends are like people go to church once every four to six weeks now. For these next few weeks, clear your schedule. 10.30 to 11.45, we'll try not to go long, okay? We'll be done before the Steelers start. I wanna see the Steelers game too, okay? I like the Steelers too. Um, I wanna encourage you to be here, why? Not because I'm the end all be all, not because this is the end all be all, but because this is a conversation that is so deeply important for us to have. And I don't want it to be a conversation that you just catch on the fly, like that you're just watching while you make lunches for your kids, or you just watch while you're wrestling through traffic. I want this to be a conversation that you can be fully engaged in, aware of, and focused on. Because it's not just about, it's not just about you getting information. It's about you getting tools that will help you process whatever comes down the pike. I don't know what the com coming down the pike. I, I don't know. I don't know what the future holds. None of us do. What I do know is I know who holds the future, right? And I know that God's word has been and will continue to be true. And if we can have this conversation of these next few weeks together, we can be better prepared, equipped, and positioned to respond in a God-honoring, biblical way 
not a way that just falls in line with where trends and culture is going. And over the last 2,000 plus years of the church's existence, when Christians, followers of Jesus, have been able to respond in that way, it has not always been favorable for them. It has not even always been favorable for the church at large. But every single time, it always glorifies God. And that's what we're here for. It's not so that we can get what we want. This isn't a means to an end. The end is to bring glory to God, our creator, the one that made us and shaped us and formed us. That is our end. So I wanna encourage you, first thing, be here the next two weeks, 10.30, right here. Be here for this conversation. If there's someone in your life that you know struggles with this, bring them. Bring them, let's have that conversation together. If you're like, I need to talk more about that, shoot me an email. I would love to, I could talk for hours on this. I'd love to grab coffee, let's talk. That one person, your coworker, who's just like militant about this or that or all about this, I'd love to talk to them. Let's talk about it. If, if I can help someone have a godly perspective, by all means. And number two, that's number one. Number two, over these next 14 days, starting tomorrow, I'm going through a Bible reading plan on the YouVersion Bible app. And I wanna invite you to join me. This isn't about just doing devotions. This isn't just about going through the motions and checking the box on the app and saying, I read it. This is about filling your mind and your heart with God's word so that you can be equipped to process how you should respond, how you should act when your boss is a jerk to you, when something happens in our world that is really unsettling, when, when everything falls apart, what are we supposed to do? God's word will inform that. Why? Because his word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. So if you go to bible.calvaryirwin.com on your phone, or if you don't have a phone, when you get home on your, uh, you know, Hewlett Packard or your compact presario, whatever it might be, go to bible.calvaryirwin.com. You can join that Bible reading plan. The great thing is, I wanna encourage you, read through the devotions each day. Read through God's word. Ask yourself this. How does this apply to me? What does this mean to me? Be willing to not just read it, but process it. And the cool thing is, you can interact on that app. You can post questions or, or thoughts or comments, and, and we can all interact together. Why? Because we need to be informed. The struggle is real of adopting a biblical worldview. It's very difficult. Taking that God perspective and, and trying to, 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 to see the world through that lens is really hard, but it's not impossible. And it can't happen if we don't first start with God's word. If his word isn't guiding us and directing us, informing us, leading us. Not, not our political persuasion, not, not what you know this talking head or that talking head should be happening but what the one that ultimately matters the most, he's the one that's been around the longest, God says about our world. That is so important. Let's take these next few weeks and immerse ourselves in God's word. Be willing to have sometimes the hard conversations. Talk through the tools that we need to process what's happening. And my hope, my hope, my hope isn't that we would be like these shining stars and be this impressive thing in our world. My hope is that we'd be these catalysts sent out into a dark and dying world. And that we don't just carry 
our own knowledge that's puffed up, we carry the word of God that changes everything it touches. In 2 Timothy chapter three, Paul writes young Timothy, this young man who's now pastoring this church in Ephesus that Paul started, and he's encouraging him, trying to help him lead well. And he says this, he says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful. There's such power in the word of God to change the world around us. And if we could be catalysts who carry the word of God into our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, it will change everything it touches. God's word does not return void. It accomplishes every purpose when we're willing to carry it. So let's be carriers of that word. Let's change the world around us, not because we're that good, but because he's that good, because we've adopted a God perspective and we're seeing what's happening through his lens, not ours. As we close today, I wanna pray. I wanna pray that God, just as he did for Paul that day in Damascus, would take the scales off your eyes and allow you to start seeing what's happening through God's word, through his lens, from his perspective. That you can see the world from a perspective of a God that still holds that world in his hands. And you could respond in a way, not to get what you want, but to ultimately accomplish what he wants, his purpose, which is to change and transform this world. Would you bow your heads with me this morning as we pray? God, I thank you. Lord, I thank you that your word, though written thousands of years ago, is so stinking relevant, Lord. I thank you that your word is so applicable to what we walk through and face today. God, I pray over these next few weeks, God, that we could immerse ourselves in your word, that your word would inform our lens and perspective, that your word would guide us, that your word would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. God, that we could meditate on that word and that we would be like trees planted by living waters. God, that we produce good fruit in season. Timing is perfect because your timing is perfect. God, change us in the ways that need changed. God, those processes, those thoughts, those stances that we've held to that maybe we've adopted from, from family history or legacy, God, let them be changed and transformed so they align with your word. God, most importantly, as you transform our perspective, God, use the word that we plant in our hearts and our minds to transform the world we touch. God, let us leave this place as catalysts to change the world, ready and willing to transform everything that we touch. Thank you, God, for what you're doing. God, I thank you that you don't abandon us and leave us in the midst of chaotic and confusing times, but you've given us your word to guide us and to direct us. God, let us trust your word. Let us lean into your word. Let us be obedient to your word. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. This is Pastor Nick Poole, the lead pastor at Calvary. We're so glad you joined us for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the message. At Calvary Church, we're passionate about leading people into an overflowing life with Jesus. We would love the opportunity to connect with you on your faith journey and hear what God is doing in your life or join you in prayer for any needs you might have. You can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com or send us an email at info at calvaryirwin.com. On our website, you'll find previous week's messages, a list of upcoming events, as well as resources designed to help you take those next steps on your journey of faith. 
see you next week and may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. 